Activating Sustainability, the Anthesis podcast. In this podcast, we speak with colleagues, thought leaders, and friends on the key sustainability issues that businesses face right now. I'm Lisa Grice, an Executive Director with Anthesis, and as our Circularity Lead in North America, I'm excited to be your guest host for this episode, which is on circularity. I'll be joined today by my UK colleague, Richard Pegum, who leads our circularity work from London. And I've also invited two of my colleagues from the life sciences business of the multinational firm Merck, KGAA, headquartered in Darmstadt, Germany. They're going to talk about some incredible circularity work they've been tackling. Uh, Fabian holds the role of global manager of product and packaging sustainability. He's been involved with two projects one focused on product design for sustainability, the other a big initiative on packaging. And Jackie works as the global manager for customer sustainability solutions and will talk with us on her innovative work driving partnerships to create circular solutions for Merck customers. Fabian, Jackie, Richard, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Hi, Isaiah. Thank you. I'm excited for our conversation today. So let's get started with a brief introduction, because the concept of a circular economy represents a really profound change to both our social and our economic structures. I mean, the idea is simple, right? Instead of a linear economy, this system where we use raw materials to create products that we expect to become waste after a short time, instead we close the loop by keeping products and materials productive for as long as possible, even when they've reached the end of their serviceable life. Let me break that down. Because how we get to a circular economy has a few parts. One part is reducing waste, and that includes the waste produced while making products and the waste produced while using products. If we make products that last longer, by being more durable, more maintainable, or upgradable, that's a fundamental way to reduce waste. A second part of the circular solution is making sure that when products do reach the end of their serviceable life, or their first life, we might say, that they have value. For example, through reuse or reprocessing or recycling. And in order to drive that end-of-life value for used products, we need to make sure that new products are made from previously used materials rather than new stuff. So finally, a successful circular economy even challenges how we connect with products. And a good example is this trend towards borrowing or leasing or sharing instead of owning. If you want a good example, I'll give you one. Have a look at the sustainability solutions business of global medical device manufacturer Stryker. I looked on their website, they calculate that their average hospital customer reduces medical waste by about 3,000 pounds annually by sending used, single-use devices back to Stryker, where they reprocess them into new devices. By the way, if you're asking why we need the transition to a circular economy, let me give you an example to answer that question. The largest waste management company in North America has about $14 billion in revenue. That's waste management. They estimate that if they could effectively separate and resell all the material in the garbage they collect every year, the company could literally double in size. So why would we ignore all that value in our trash? 
On top of that, this whole take-make-waste linear model is causing progressive depletion of raw materials. It's causing social and ecological degradation, both in the way we get those raw materials and in finding some place to put all our trash. So on today's podcast on Circular Economy, we'll talk with folks who are finding ways to drive all those many parts of a circular strategy and help make a circular economy a reality. So Fabian, a really fundamental part of circular economy is the idea of designing products from the get-go that facilitate circular principles. And you and I have been working together on a really fun project, building design for sustainability into Merck's product development cycle. So would you describe how Merck's Design for Sustainability Scorecard helps to put circular principles into your products? Yes, of course. Design for Sustainability is an important program that is embedded in our product development process in order to make sure that our development teams take into account environmental impacts during product development. As part of a Design for Sustainability program, we have an important tool that is our sustainability scorecard. This scorecard consists of a list of product sustainability criteria that are grouped in specific impact areas, including circular economy, in order to cover the major potential impacts of a product on human health and on the environment across its life cycle. As part of our Design for Sustainability program, we use this scorecard not only to assess the sustainability characteristic of our products, but also to guide our development teams at the early stage of the product development process on what and how they could improve. In regard to circular economy, our scorecard notably provides our development team with several leads on how to improve on aspects like material efficiency, product longevity, and recyclability via design or via infrastructure. Can we improve the product design to improve the manufacturing yield or to reduce the amount of waste generated during product use? How to facilitate life-extending maintenance? How to maximize recyclability of the product parts? These are the type of consideration that with our Design for Sustainability program, we want to become an integral and standard aspect of all our new product development projects. Wow, that's incredible. Thanks. And I've seen a bunch of scorecards, and it really seems like Merck's scorecard is tackling some new issues in sustainability, like how do you design a product to improve manufacturing yield or to extend the product's lifespan through upgradability? Those are new scorecard elements. Okay, so what Fabian's been talking about is how to design a product from the get-go to be a better fit in a circular future. Jackie, you've tackled something that I know companies of all sorts have had trouble with. Companies often put products out in the market that conceptually are recyclable, but sometimes the infrastructure doesn't exist to recycle the product or customers don't know how to recycle the product. You've spearheaded some really significant efforts to enable recycling of your product to really help your customers find a high-value end-of-life for the Merck product. So I'd love it if you would describe what did that require, why did you do it, and was the effort successful? Yeah, sure. So I think the first thing is I always say to people, 
product recycling or the products that we make is it's not like plastic bottle recycling. The waste that comes out of a biomanufacturing process, which is where our, most of our products are being used, is a mixed plastic waste. There's mixed plastics within the actual products themselves and all of the products together within the waste bin, as well as other materials that are in there. And so it's a typically valueless waste stream, if you will, because of the mixture and the inability for the current infrastructure to really separate and segregate the plastics um, and send them into the recycling streams for the different types of plastics. It's also very dirty. It can sometimes be um, classified as a biohazardous waste as well. And so that gives it an even bigger challenge and hurdle to overcome. And it's an industry where it's actually growing. The use of these products is growing quite rapidly year over year um, because it helps us make drugs that save people's lives. And so uh, this is a new technology that makes a much more agile and smaller footprint, if you will. And while it actually does decrease the overall environmental impact, you're left at the end of the day with tons of plastic waste. And so we took on the project, if you will, to actually figure out how to recycle this waste. And what it really took was finding a partner outside of our industry, so in the waste management or waste collection industry, and someone who was really willing to take that risk and step outside of their own wheelhouse and try to do something a little bit different than what is normally done. And so we've been able to work with this partner and our customers in order to develop a commercially viable program where the waste is collected, can be actually treated, sterilized if necessary, and then that mixed plastic is actually used right there on the same site in manufacturing a plastic lumber. And so I would say the biggest lesson that we've learned from it is this cross-industry collaboration that has to happen. Um, here we are a, a supplier to the healthcare industry. And then, of course, we have our customers the, the, within the healthcare industry. And then someone who's a waste management company who's willing to really step outside of their comfort zone and take that risk to work with us on it. And it's going to take that kind of collaborations. It's going to take the thinking outside of the box. Um, I think that's one of the, the biggest successes from this. Everybody said to me when we first started this, why would you do this? This is such a challenging waste stream. You know, it looks impossible. Why would you do that? Just send it to incineration. And yet here we've done it. So we've proven that it can be done. And I think what it's what I'm starting to see is people starting to rethink waste streams. So when we look back at plastic bottle recycling and we say, oh, that can't be recycled or it's really difficult, here's a, an instance where, no, that's not true. <laughs> you can do it. The challenge is there. Let's get out there and do it. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Jackie, I wish I could just hit pause and put some of your words on a screen if we had one. Because for sure, this is how we get to a fully circular economy. And, and by that, I mean with everybody thinking outside of their box and thinking about how to connect the dots. And, and you guys have done that. You've completed a fantastic project in connecting the dots at the way you have. Congratulations. Well, we've talked about products for a few minutes, so let's take some time and talk about packaging. Merck just released a really aggressive initiative to reduce packaging and make it more sustainable. Fabian, can you describe how that initiative incorporates circular concepts? Yeah, and, and in fact, um, this is uh, really a, um, a topic that is um, yeah, really important to me, uh, notably because uh, my background is in packaging development. 
And the fact is that packaging sustainability is also uh, really important for, for our customers. Indeed, uh, most of our customers have sustainability targets, uh, such as waste reduction. And uh, one of the first elements that uh, our customer uh, a challenge is the packaging of our products, uh, notably because uh, it is really uh, tangible and uh, it is something that really quickly become a waste for, for our customers. So, um, so as you mentioned, um, we have recently uh, announced the launch of a packaging sustainability plan uh, that we call a Smash Packaging. And with this plan, our aim is to um, to drive change and to uh, and to significantly uh, increase sustainability in packaging across uh, our life science business. This plan uh, is based on three pillars that are optimized resources, more sustainable materials, and designed for circular economy. And to support these three pillars, we defined four key goals that are named shrink, secure, switch, and save. I will explain what they mean uh, in a minute. And in fact, for each of these goals, we set specific 2022 targets that address both new product packaging development, but also the improvement of our existing product and distribution packaging. So with our shrink goal, our aim is to avoid the use of packaging that is excessive in size and weight because this unnecessarily increases packaging related cost for us and for our customers. With our secure goal, our aim is to demonstrate that the wood and fiber-based material that we use to pack and ship our products to our customers do not contribute to deforestation. And we will notably focus on increasing the use of certified materials and the use of recycled content to contribute to, to this target. With our switch goal, our aim is to improve sustainability of plastic material that are used in packaging applications. It's notably by avoiding the use of substance of concern and also increasing the use of plastic material with lower environmental impacts. And last but not least, with our safe goal, our aim is to maximize recycling of our packaging, notably by avoiding the use of materials or techniques that are not compatible with recycling, but also by providing our customers with guidance on how to dispose of packaging materials more responsibly. Holy cow, you're tackling a lot. I'm curious, how long did it take to develop and deploy that program? Yeah, so it, it took us um, about a year and a half between the, the beginning of, of the project and uh, the launch of the program in April of this year. Yeah, it took a time to develop the, um, the, the framework, and then it took time to align internally with our key internal stakeholders to ensure that all our internal stakeholders would feel comfortable with, with the plan, with the goals and targets, to ensure that they, they, they would support and uh, be engaged with, uh, with the program. I think that's a really important point, and I've seen that with your sustainability team there. You do a lot to work with your internal stakeholders so that once you deploy a new initiative, it really is a company initiative, not a sustainability group initiative. Pretty impressive. 
it's one of the key to, to the success of uh, this type of uh, uh, huge initiative, for sure. So when we talk about packaging, it's easy to start thinking about end of life. There are a lot of products out in the market, and of course the cornerstone of a circular economy is closing the loop with those products at the end of their life. Richard, you're a preeminent expert on product take-back and the problems that companies run into trying to do that. Are you excited to talk about that with us? Uh, absolutely. Thank you, Lisa. Um, so I, I think one thing to bear in mind maybe up front is um, these have to be commercial programs. They have to be financially viable. And um, while you need to probably start with a pilot, that commercial viability is something you have to aspire to um, you know, in what you are working towards. And the margins are often pretty tight in these processes when you're dealing with product, used products or waste materials. And identifying early enough where there's value within what you're taking back, identifying winners in terms of you know products and materials where there's value and not wasting time and resource on items or materials that aren't going to go anywhere is key. That sort of decision is called the disposition logic and getting that right is a real challenge. Um, some sectors do this really well. So the, the IT asset management, ITAD sector, I've worked with some of those guys that got quite complex algorithms of when to sort of reuse an item of IT and when to send it straight to recycling. Other smaller organizations do it on gut feel, but they do it quite well. And you see other circular economy pilots that have a relatively simplistic view of that kind of thing. You know, we've reused this item, buying one new would be $100, so we've made $100, and it just doesn't really work like that. And so taking a sort of example from our work, we have um, taken over reverse logistics for large format printers for a client, uh, trying to uh, generate value in a, in a circular way um, through reuse rather than reprocessing. And while you've got some great examples of reuse that work really well from a financial point of view as well, there was a lot of uh, material there that we couldn't reuse, um, more material than we can handle, and it meant the trial didn't really work. So the next time we worked with a client, because we were getting a lot of material back we weren't expecting, and things like theft of good items and contamination of things that you have to price in and factor for in these. These NAP, which um, the guys in the warehouse had, so they could take photos of what they're sending back to enable that decision. So the use of tech in this space and can be really useful. Moving away from value, you need to physically take this material back and just finding partners that can match the global footprints of our clients, the complexities of the products and materials they produce, and the treatment requirements around that material. So, you know, they might be potentially hazardous or food contact. The form factors, you know, kind of things are getting increasingly smaller, more complicated in terms of materials are all challenges and finding the right partner can be critical. And just sort of challenging that is a really important part of getting that set up. So working with some guys and, you know, we, we found a partner who said, we're global. And we said, great, the products in New Zealand. And they said, well, can you get it to Singapore? And it's like, that's not really global. That's a long way. Things like commodity volatility can cause issues as well. So we started a take-back project with a client, all working really well, and then the price of cobalt changed. And by the end of the project, everything that was viable at the beginning of the project was no longer viable at the end. Markets go up and down. It's what they do. But you have to factor these things in, along with the issues of moving material across country borders, the increasing regulation around there, conversations about whether the item is waste or not. And again, those things are hazardous classifications as well. All really important stuff you've got to get right and have set up from the outset. So, so quite a lot of sort of technical challenges around the logistics, but also getting the value right. And I think those are the biggest things around product take back. Wow. When we think of the percent of companies that are involved in product take back, 
there's so much more room to grow. And when you point out all the complexities, like all these details and logistics, we realize it's not easy. It's doable though, right? Oh, absolutely. There's businesses that do it really well. You know, we set up a take back business at a, a, a large IT company. And uh, now there's a standalone business unit based around circular economy and take back. It's got a revenue target of a billion dollars. So when you get it right, it can work really well. But these sort of complexities are what trip you up and you've got to go in with your eyes open. Thanks. You know, often the best way to keep materials and products at their most productive is to completely change how we use them. So let me take a minute to speak to two specific megatrends in new business models that are driving circularity. All right, the first megatrend, that's the drive towards paying for use rather than paying to own. Simplest form of this has been around forever, that's leasing rather than owning a product. And now, newer trends, product sharing, like we see with Airbnb and Lyft, good examples. Another fast-driving piece of this megatrend is the move towards selling the service that a product provides rather than selling the product itself. That's a form of managed services, or some people call it product as a service. There's the example with Philips, where they sell lighting as a service. That's where they retain ownership of the lighting equipment, and the customer pays an annual subscription fee to have lighting that meets their needs. And the circularity benefits of these models can be, oh, there's all sorts of things. Um, manufacturers are incentivized to produce more long-lived products. Um, fewer products are required to provide the same level of use. And in the case of this managed service model, it's easier to recover and recycle products at the end of their serviceable life. So I promised two megatrends. The second one is re-commerce, re-commerce. So re-commerce or resale is already worth like $24 billion and it's expected to grow to $51 billion in just five years. The movement to putting previously owned products back on the market is growing like gangbusters. You can see programs like Amazon Renewed and Apple Certified Refurbished. And there are just a plethora of online marketplaces like Depop and Craigslist and Alibaba. I mean, to be fair, not all this resale is new. One of the biggest players has been around for a really long time, which is Goodwill Industries. They said in 2018, they diverted about 4 billion pounds of used good from landfill. Pretty impressive. But this whole resale business is really growing, perhaps exponentially. And I need to stress that these new business models, they require deep transformation for a typical traditional manufacturing and retail business. It touches every part of the business, from the supply chain to the R&D to sales to accounting. And what's more, these new commercial approaches are creating entirely new types of business entities that help with things like reverse logistics and refurbishing recovered products and managing the messy inventory of all these one-off items and even creating a new resale brand. There's a good example of that. The company Yertle is actually the resale support partner behind fashion house Eileen Fisher's Renew brand and Patagonia's Warnware. Wow, well, there's a lot to talk about on this subject. 
But how about if we close our discussion by talking a bit about how a company can get started? Let me distill it down to three steps if you produce or sell a product. Number one, start with waste. Figure out where you have waste in production, your supply chain, or your product. And then what can you do about it? How can you reduce that waste? And how can you get more value out of that? Number two, move on to your product. Consider how you can extend the lifespan of your product. How can you be more resource efficient across the whole product life cycle? And where can you use recycled or recovered materials instead of new? Third, finally, what's your next business model? Because what made you successful today may not be your success tomorrow. Think of companies that didn't do that, like Blockbuster. There are lots of new business models underway, and you need to think about which ones are a risk to your current business and which ones are an opportunity, and how do you begin the process of driving your change? So those are my ideas. Richard, I bet you have a few suggestions as well. Um, so I'm a big fan of the maxim, what gets measured gets done. Looking at your production and consumption and sustainability impacts as an organization and figuring out how this can improve those while delivering value for your clients and knowing what's really good about your product and kind of doing that without the physical material and having some metrics around that so you can really drive that performance, set targets, and then, you know, it's a great news story so shouting about it as well thank you well in close i'd like to thank fabian and jackie and richard for joining me and we'd love to hear from our listeners with your feedback and thoughts so to talk to us about the topics from this episode please reach out to me my email is lisa.grice that's g-r-i-c-e at anthesisgroup.com thanks for listening everybody we'll talk with you next time